The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So just to review uh, the basic framework that we've been working with is a really useful framework uh, that the Buddha used quite a bit. It's a way of dividing up the Eightfold Path, or you could say a way of dividing up a spiritual path into three ways of reflecting or three ways of developing the mind, developing our skillfulness. We work with uh, purifying, I guess you could say, our actions in the world. So we're learning to consciously undermine self-centered actions, so where we're acting out of greed or acting out of aversion, and replacing those actions with actions that aren't coming from greed, aren't coming from delusion, aren't coming from aversion. So we call that sila, or you could say uh, moral discipline. But it's specifically undermining, refraining from self-centered activities, cultivating selfless activities. And then we're also purifying the mind. So that's purification of action. We're also purifying the mind. So you can just reflect, like, how do we purify the mind in our daily life? Well, mostly we're quite scattered as we go about our day. And uh, as we're scattered, you know, there's various strands of lust arise. Oh, if only I could have this. And various strands of aversion. You know, why is this this way? Why can't it be some other way? various strands of denial and delusion, you know, not wanting to be, not wanting to see. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I prefer ignorance. It's that bumper sticker you see around once in a while. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. <laughs> Something like that. So, um, so we want to purify the mind Instead of being scattered, we want the mind to be one-pointed. Instead of the mind being under the influence of afflictive mind states, we want the mind, our present moment quality of the mind, the environment of our mind, we want it to be under the influence of wholesome states like love or forgiveness or gratitude or patience or clarity or something like that. That would be a nice... That, that would be nice to have our minds under the influence of those forces as opposed to feeling needy or wanting to control life so it, it's always the way I want it to be. That just makes things tight. So there's this whole part of spiritual practice that where we're actually purifying the environment of our mind, undermining afflictive mind states, supporting developing wholesome mind states. And then the third place, the third way we practice, the, the third kind of purification, is also working with the mind, but it's specifically we're purifying our view, our understanding of the nature of things. So it's not just like whether thoughts come and go and whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, but it's more about how we're understanding everything, like how we're taking this to be, what we're taking this to be, what we're taking our thoughts to be, how are, how are we relating to things. So this is a view. We always have a view. Usually our view has some flavor of, it's about me. <laughs> and uh, 
that's called a self-centered view, and we're learning to purify the tendency towards having views that have a lot to do with me and mine and I to views that aren't so stuck, aren't so um, focused on that notion of I, me, or mine. And this is basically our practice, whether we're doing formal sitting practice or just living what we would say is a spiritual life, developing awareness or understanding in life. We're purifying our actions from self-centered actions to selfless actions. We're purifying the content of the mind from selfish thoughts, you know, greed and aversion and thoughts like that, to wholesome thoughts like love and forgiveness and gratitude and joy and patience, compassion. And we're purifying our view, our understanding, how we understand our experience, how we relate to our experience. That is also something we're purifying. And in this last category, which is in the Buddhist model model or teaching, it's the wisdom or understanding section. So we have sila, which is ethics or moral discipline. We have samadhi, which is purification of the mind. And we have... Um, wisdom, panya. And uh, this is the, what I've been touching on in the last month or so. And earlier I talked about wisdom in terms of compassion. Like, how do we create the conditions to meet the world with a compassionate, tender, loving heart? And another particular flavor, basically the same thing, but how do we cultivate a heart that appreciates what's beautiful and what's good in the world. And in Buddhism, this, uh, in Pali, I should say, the word is mudita. It's one of the four Brahma-viharas. Mudita, sometimes translated as appreciative joy. That's the translation I like best. Other times, empathetic joy or sympathetic joy or gladness. So it's the heart that, in a sense, rejoices in what is beautiful, what is good, what is wholesome. As opposed to we see something wholesome, like we see somebody picking up trash that we had walked by. And, you know, instead of rejoicing in the goodness of that person, you know, oh, it's such a do-gooder, you know. (laughs) He probably was an Eagle Scout or something like that. So... If this is not something we tend to, uh, it's not something we get to see a lot in our hearts, this appreciative joy or this gladness. Where we're, first of all, where we're actually able to recognize what's beautiful. I mean, the truth is, beauty and difficulty is probably always around us. You know, if we just, like even now, there's a lot of beauty right now. I mean, just... The fact that 50-some people, 60-some people are here on a Wednesday night sitting together, that's, I mean, it may not be the most beautiful thing in the world, but (laughs) it's pretty nice that this many people want to come and reflect on the Buddhist teachings and awareness practice and developing our hearts and minds in a wholesome direction. It's pretty nice. I mean, it's just pretty nice that people will sit quietly, so many, so close, and you know, most of us felt relative, except for the pain in our bodies, we felt relatively safe here, being here in this space. That's kind of neat. You know, most public settings, you wouldn't sit this close together, 
quietly with your eyes closed. You wonder people were looking at you with your eyes closed. But here we feel pretty safe, and that's kind of nice. So, but we could also reflect on suffering because we know in this room there are probably more than a handful of people in really difficult straits right now. Maybe people, person has lost a job, or maybe someone has a good friend who's in a really difficult place, or a parent who's dying, or who knows what. And you know, we can without ever hearing the story, we can just look around and we, in a way, we sort of wear our pain on the surface, you know. We can just see, oh, it's that easy being a human being over there, just like it's that easy being a human being here. I mean, we know what it's like being a human being. So we can just have an intuitive sense that the difficulty that we've experienced, other people in this room, it's not hypothetical, it's real. The weight, the pain, the confusion, the uncertainty. This exists for people right here. And the point is, the way that we uh, begin to transform our view, this is the interesting thing. Normally, when you, when you hear about purifying our view, <clears throat> we might think, well, we got to read books, you know, so we understand, like, what's the wrong view, and let me figure out what the right view is. Oh, the Buddha says the right view is this view, okay. So I'm going to be compassionate and wise. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we all know this. This is so obvious that we can't go directly to being compassionate and wise just because we want to be compassionate and wise. But what's so interesting is that we discover, just paying attention in our life, we discover that wisdom and compassion, this uh, altruistic joy or appreciative joy or gladness, this arises naturally under particular conditions. And the particular condition that supports the arising of this particular kind of wisdom that we call mudita, or appreciative joy, the proximate cause is letting the heart be touched by beauty. Learning to recognize first. First, we just have to <clears throat> go beyond our beliefs that there's nothing beautiful, there's nothing good. <clears throat> and some of us, <clears throat> excuse me, some of us in this room probably or deeply conditioned to be cynical and basically think, you know, everything's rotten to its core. And boys, you know, if you have that tendency, as I do, at least in, in certain places in my life, that's really an unpleasant way to live, to kind of be cynical in that way. And the worst thing about it is then we're constantly looking into the world to prove that we're right, <laughs> you know, that nothing is worthy of being trusted. I have this feeling with politics a lot of the time. Like I, I like to read, you know, the New York Times and Talking Point Memo and these sort of websites just to confirm my deep conviction that no politician is to be trusted. <laughs> you know, and so you avoid, you know, your mind eventually gets to the point where it just avoids anything that smacks of goodness in the political world. And all we see is when people change, you know, their point of view for political reasons or, you know, attack somebody else or do all these things that we think are wrong, and then we feel good. Except what we really feel is lousy. You know, we feel good. The ego feels stroked a little bit because, oh, I'm right. I knew it. But underneath, it's really a lousy feeling. And then it starts to leak everywhere. 
you know, so we start seeing it in our friends, like all the things that are wrong with our friends, how they're inconsistent too. <laughs> and, then, and then in ourselves. <laughs> so we really want, you know, we really have an incentive to transform our view because having this cynical view, any kind of self-centered view, and a cynical view is a self-centered view. It's like, it's like me knowing that the world is bad, me knowing that the world doesn't make sense, that no one is to be trusted. It's kind of part of this general category of views called, oh, oh poor me. You know, like, oh, poor me, the world is not to be trusted. Nobody is to be trusted. Oh, poor me. And, you know, there are particular flavors of self-centered views. This is just one. So the way we transform that view is we can um, let the heart, train the heart basically, train the mind to, to be intimate, to be fully present. And in this way, we're kind of going beyond our conditioned way of seeing things, our conditioned view, to, you could say, a more radically truthful view, which is a bare attention. And with, as we cultivate mindfulness or bare attention or just this profound quality of presence, we'll naturally see what is unpleasant and what is beautiful. We'll see people suffering, we'll see suffering and difficulty, and we'll see beauty and goodness. But we'll see it without the view that, you know, it's about me or it's about them. We'll just see suffering as suffering and beauty as beauty. And... When, it, when we see it in that raw, unfiltered way, the, we'll notice that the heart responds in a really beautiful way. So late May and, and early June, I talked about this in terms of compassion. When the heart opens to suffering in this unfiltered way, when we're really present, relaxed, intimate with suffering, so we're not thinking about it, like why is this person suffering or why am I suffering? But we're just intimate with the pain, with the confusion, with whatever that suffering is. We'll see the heart respond in a really powerful, beautiful, and wise way. This feeling like, I care. It's just a feeling of connection. It's almost the opposite of what we normally, the way we normally relate with suffering, which is we want to distance ourselves. We want to protect ourselves in some way. But all of a sudden we feel like uh, the suffering belongs, that it's, it's not a problem, it's something to say yes to. Obviously we don't prefer suffering, we don't want people to suffer, but when it arises we say yes to it because saying no to suffering is more suffering. So the way, the first and most immediate way we alleviate suffering is we say yes to suffering that has already arisen. We don't close our heart, we don't distract ourselves, we don't run away. And it's exactly the same with beauty, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago. That the first step with what is beautiful, what is good, what is wholesome, what is pleasant, is to say yes to it, to let it in, to touch it, to let it, uh, you know, it's like uh, every, in, in our essence, what we are more than anything is we're this sensitivity. And the self-centered view, 
this basic ignorance that we're all affected by says, because I'm sensitive, I better be careful. But what this path leads to, you know, as we cultivate awareness, what we begin to discover is just because we're sensitive doesn't mean we need to protect the sensitivity. So what we're learning is that what you do with a sensitive, what a sensitive being does with its sensitivity is it feels, it opens, it receives what's beautiful and opens and receives what's not beautiful. That's the path of sensitive beings, if you want to be happy. If you want to suffer, then the path as a sensitive being is to try to control what you're sensitive to. Like, always be sensitive to what's pleasant and never be sensitive to what's unpleasant. And that's how we create suffering in the world. We're always trying to get what's pleasant and get away from what's unpleasant. And then we suffer and suffer and suffer. So this particular training that I'm talking about tonight and, and maybe for a couple more weeks, although I won't be here next Wednesday, Gail Iverson will be sub subbing for me. I'll be on retreat with Ajahn Chandakos. Maybe some people in this room. I know John's going up north with us. Anybody else going up to the retreat? Dave's coming. Um, so Gail will, I think, be continuing the discussion of the Brahma Viharas, the four beautiful emotions of gladness, so the one we're talking about tonight, Mudita, compassion I talked about, and then there's metta and equanimity, loving kindness and equanimity. So the key for all of the, the sort of uh, basic strategy for the promotion of this kind, this expression of wisdom is to say yes. And in this particular example, to say yes to what's beautiful, to let it in. And then the interesting thing, and I want to spend a little bit talking, a little bit of time talking about this tonight, is that when we say yes to what's beautiful, you might notice your heart reacting, just the opposite of what you might expect. Like if you hear somebody in this room, you know, got a great job, and you practice mudita. One of the phrases we use when we're formally doing this appreciative joy practice is we'll repeat the phrase. May your happiness continue. May your happiness increase. May it never end. Right? Now, we know it's not going to never end. We know how everything comes and goes. But we can have that wish, can't we? But sometimes <clears throat> when we attempt to practice mudita, we see something beautiful. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. It sort of provokes the opposite response. Like, what do you mean? What about me? Right? So there's there's a whole series of things we want to be on the lookout for. I think uh, Sharon Salzberg in her wonderful book about these four Brahma Viharas, these four wholesome, beautiful emotions. Loving kindness, the revolu revolutionary art of happiness. It's a real classic now in this particular topic of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy or appreciative joy and equanimity, these four emotions the Buddha talked a lot about. Um, she talks about seven qualities that we want to be on the lookout for that, that actually, uh, uh, you know, they're like the gatekeepers keeping us from really resting in mudita and appreciative joy, judging, comparing, discriminating, 
demeaning, envy, avarice, and boredom. Right? And and these things are very compelling. These different mind states are very compelling. Like with judging, it seems so appropriate to judge people. So if we did hear about someone getting the job, you know, instead of may your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end, that authentic gladness, like we're rejoicing in their happiness. Instead of that, we go, well, you know, she probably got the job because of affirmative action. Or, you know, if I had done that, I would have, I would have been promoted years ago. Or, you know, she'll probably get laid off in a couple of years. <laughs> so we have this, you know, this, this uh, all kinds of responses that almost, in a sense, mas- masquerade as wisdom. Like, oh, this is just how it is. You know, I'm just seeing it as it actually is. But what we're doing is we're diminishing the, the very <coughs> fact that there is joy and in this world that we humans live in, happiness is a fragile commodity. And so when it arises, however it arises, when somebody is in a moment happy, even if it's just the simple happiness of a dog getting a bone, even something that simple, this is something that the heart, our heart, can rejoice in, actually can be a cause for happiness. We don't need to judge and react and kind of put the situation in a box. We can actually let the joy in, let the simple beauty in. And in this way, our heart is being, our mind is being rejuvenated all day long because we're training the heart, training the mind to recognize joy, to recognize what's good and beautiful all day long. Little places, little bits, big bits in our own experience, around us and other people. I remember Carol Wilson, she's a wonderful teacher, teaches a lot at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. She was just out at Spear Rock where I was on retreat with Ajahn Sumedho, so I got to see her. But she's one of these very funny, when she gives Dharma talk, she's very funny. And a lot of the reason she's funny is she's willing to tell stories about her, her own mind and how she creates suffering. <laughs> so she told this one story. She, Before she became a Dharma teacher, she was on staff at IMS back in the 70s, right after it started. IMS is the big uh, retreat center out in the middle of Massachusetts. It's kind of the grandfather institution of this style of Buddhism here in the States. And uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfeld founded it back in 1975. And Carol Wilson was one of the first staff and soon became a teacher there. But she was saying, once she was uh, on staff there, and she noticed two other staff people walking together, holding hands. And uh, they're in love. And so the first thought in her mind, she was walking with another person. She turns to the other person and says, it's never going to last. <laughs> and, you know, it's like a perfect example. I mean, of course, it isn't going to last because even if it lasts until they die, it's going to end at some point. You know, one of the people are going to die. So 
whether it lasts for a week or 40 years or whatever, sure, it's going to end. But the point is, when two people are feeling a lot of affection for one another, it's not the most profound thing in the world, but it is a beautiful thing. And it's something to be appreciated. That kind of affection is often, at least, a wholesome, beautiful thing. We don't have to sort of analyze it and wonder if one is codependent on the other. Or... I mean, if, if we're their counselor, maybe then, well, that's our responsibility. Or if somehow they're, you know, we're in a particular position. But mostly the position we're in for other, with other people is just to appreciate the simple happiness and beauty that arises around us to acknowledge it, not necessarily that we have to say anything, but just to acknowledge it in our own mind. Oh, this is beautiful. This is good. This is wholesome. And, you know, we see it like our response, our recognizing it, and the response here, that's also beautiful. It's like you could say it's a double happiness or even a triple happiness. Kamala masters another IMS teacher, and she comes here once a year and teaches in the summer and then usually gives a talk at Common Ground after the retreat that they lead. And um, when she was practicing at IMS, there's this long walk that a lot of people take after lunch. It's this beautiful three-mile walk. It's called the Loop. It's just the rolling countryside in that part of Massachusetts. And there's this old dog. I remember when I used to practice at IMS uh, at one of the houses. And it would inevitably follow any of the retreatants or staff that would do the walk all the way around. You know, it was old. It was probably like 12 or 13 years old, one of those big rickety dogs. And uh, finally one day, Kamala, who did it every day, took this walk every day, looked at the dog and in and, and a really stern voice, you know, told the dog, sit, you know, and stay. And so the dog sat. And she noticed that the dog was so happy. <laughs> not to have to follow her around the whole three-mile loop. So Kamala noticed the dog's happiness and appreciated that. And then she noticed that she was happy because the dog was happy, and she appreciated that. So it's almost like triple happiness. It's like the dog's happy. That's happiness. We're happy because the dog's happy. That's the second. And then we're happy that we're happy that the dog's happiness made us happy, like recognizing the mudita itself. And of course, it keeps going on and on like that. It's in the same way that if we react negatively, it also sort of is a feedback loop. We just start weaving more unhappiness in our own hearts and around us. And in a way, I think it's fair to say that we are either cultivating happiness and joy or we're cultivating unhappiness and weight in our lives. It's basically one or the other. I'm not sure we often stand still. So that's a, a question. Now, even asking that question, it's like it could be the cause for us to judge ourselves anymore. Oh, I knew I was creating hell for myself, and now I understand how I'm doing it. Oh, it's even worse than I thought. You know? And, you know, and we can think, oh, and I bet everybody else in this room never does that. You know? And just kind of dig our hole deeper and deeper. Which, again, is another version of, oh, poor me. It isn't fair. Life is unfair. Or we could say, oh, I am so grateful to understand how I have created suffering, how we create suffering. I'm so grateful. Now I can 
pay attention and I can make changes. And even if I fall back into those old habits, I'll catch it. You know, we could, and you know, in a lot of circles, this is, you know, you call it uh, positive thinking. But it's, you know, in Buddhism, there's the central principle is karma, cause and effect. And to, for us to begin to notice how our particular, remember we're talking about view, wisdom, the way we relate or understand things. There is karmic implications for the particular view that we are living under, the influence of. And we want to really get this. Otherwise, we just take our view, our mood, our perspective for granted. Like, is who I am. You know, I'm the cynical guy. I'm the happy, optimistic guy. We just assume that, we're, you know, that we are actually recreating our view, our mood, our attitude, our way of relating moment by moment. This is something that we have to project over and over again. So the nice thing about that is we could project, we could have a different view. We don't always have to recreate the same view, the same attitude, the same way of relating. Just because it's an old habit doesn't mean that there's actually anything fixed about it. It's just what it is. It's a habit. Now, habits have some momentum, but that momentum can be undermined by the cultivation of a new habit, like seeing joy, seeing what's beautiful, seeing what's good, appreciating it, appreciating that we appreciate it, and on and on like that. So let's just take a few more minutes and relate uh, to these seven things, that uh, seven obstacles that Sharon brings up, just so that we're more quickly going to recognize them when they come up in our mind. So again, judging, comparing, discriminating, demeaning, envy, avarice, or being like wanting to, it's like afraid that if if anybody knows about what we have, all the good stuff we have, that it's going to, like, they're going to get it, or somehow I'll lose it. So we want to hold tight and boredom. So with judgment, one of the, the questions that I, for me, is really helpful. Like, when we see somebody, when we see happiness out there or something good out there, and you notice the question, you know, does this person deserve it? Is this fair or something like that? It's like, what a relief it is not to have to figure out whether somebody deserves what's happening to them. All we know is that this is how it is. And so it's like, you know, if we only saw how heavy judging is, as a mind state, what an afflictive mind state it is, we would readily put it down. So to just ask yourself, do I need to come to some conclusion whether this person deserves to be happy? Ah, well, I can just appreciate this person is happy. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. So you might want to memorize that phrase or some phrase you like so that just as the counterpoint to each of these seven things. So when you notice your mind judging someone's success, someone's happiness in the world, then just, just, just do I have to go there? 
could it be another way? And then you just try out the phrase. Like, this is the other way. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. a lot of reasons we judge people is we want our view of the world to be right and if, if it doesn't make sense that this person is being successful like it challenges our way of understanding like no success should come this way and that's not how this person got success so it's something's wrong here you know and we don't trust their happiness we'd rather be right you know than people being happy and then comparing this is a, another weight that we can observe. And Sharon calls this a gnawing, painful restlessness, always comparing. You know how this is. <laughs> Sometimes this is like a great aspect of delusion. I notice my own mind. It's like, I'll, like in a room like this, like at the beginning of a program or when I'm out in public. <laughs> it's like the kind of uh, smugness. I'll be watching how other people are watching other people. Have you ever caught yourself doing this? It is so funny. It's like, and I, you know, because I've been watching my own mind, I know how minds work because I've watched mine. And so I'll be watching people, and I'll be watching how they're judging other people. I'll, I'll be watching who they're watching, and like how they're judging other people. Now, isn't that absurd? Like, I mean, it's absurd because I'm basically doing the same thing, but not knowing it. So this is like this is a very deep pattern in our minds to compare, and it doesn't matter whether we think we're better than, or worse than, or even the same as. Each one of those views is a self-centered view and a weight. It's a form of suffering. Thinking like me having the view that hey, you know what, we're all in the same boat here. That's a weight. I don't need to have that view. I don't need to think you guys are better than me. I don't need to think you guys are worse than me or the same as me. It's all unnecessary. So this is a comparing mind, and it gets in the way of appreciative joy, mudita. Feeling obliged to compare ourselves, to kind of stack people up, the best, the second best, da 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 You know, and this is the whole competition that we live and breathe, you know, it's kind of, we're kind of brought up in that culture where we feel like we have to sort of discriminate according to where people are. I'll just read a paragraph here in Sharon's book about this, about uh, comparing. At the center of a comparing mind is competition. Who is going, who's going to win by being better? The Buddha once said, in a battle, the winners and losers both lose. The, de the defeated lose power, freedom, property, family, and sometimes their lives. But the winners of the battle find themselves left with the hatred, fear, and envy of those who have been overcome. In the cycle of revenge, it's just a matter of time until, we, until the wheel turns. And those who have been winners become losers. When the battle is an inner one, over who is inherently better or worse, who is happier or more deserving, we are setting ourselves up to lose. In practicing sympathetic joy, rather than looking at others in order to define ourselves, we begin by recognizing that we do indeed deserve to be happy. 
Out of that confidence, we are able to delight in the happiness of others instead of feeling threatened by it. Rather than losing ourselves in the centrifugal uh, force of longing that pulls our focus outwards towards what we think we don't have, sympathetic joy reorients our relationship to the world into one of opening and effortless giving. So this is like to go beyond any of these afflictive states like comparing mind. We have to we have to touch some universal truth. And again, not philosophically, but in the present moment, something that we see, experience in the present moment that resonates like true now, true in the past, always will be true. And the way Sharon describes it in this re- the two paragraphs that I read is we recognize this wish for our happiness. Now, this seems so obvious, but actually this is very powerful to connect with this. It's not even to connect. It's like to recognize this wish. May I be happy. I deserve to be happy. Happiness is possible. So this wish for happiness you might think, well, this is an egocentric thing. And I, I, it certainly can move in that direction. But before it even becomes about Mark wanting to be happy, there is this archetypal wish to be happy. And the reason it's important to recognize it sort of in its essence is then we realize you have that same wish and you have that same wish. Everybody has that same wish to be happy. And in this way... It, we're all the same. We I, we really can connect because, and it makes it easier to start appreciating other people's happiness because we understand they want to be happy just like I want to be happy, and they're receiving some happiness, just like I want to receive happiness, and we start to see how beautiful it is that they have some happiness, some success, something good arising for them, and we can appreciate it. So that's a way to pull us out of that comparing mind, is just to see this deep connection. I want to be happy. I deserve to be happy. I wish to be happy. Just as you, everybody, wishes to be happy. And then there's discriminating mind. And one of the funny things, I remember Joseph Goldstein saying, one of my teachers, and uh, this great line, like, <clears throat> can you imagine saying to somebody, may all beings except X, Y, and Z be happy? You know, it just, it feels weird when we say that our, you know how uh, people have had bumper stickers, you know, God bless America. Now, especially in like this kind of neighborhood, Seward, you see new bumper stickers, you know, may all beings be no, may God bless all beings without exceptions, or something like that. All people without exception, exceptions. And uh, it's like people recognize, even though on some level, you know, may God bless America, or God bless America, it's not a bad thing to say or think. But with a little wisdom, we, we begin to pick up what's really behind that. And, and it becomes silly. It's like we, all it takes is a little reflection you know, because for most of us, I mean, God's a loaded term, but for most of us, God represents the universal. And so 
it makes no sense that the universal would sort of be choosing sides or would say, you know, I love all of you except Henry and Sally. You know, my heart doesn't go there. But the rest of you, I love unconditionally. May almost all beings be happy. And so this is that, like, really seeing that discriminating mind, like, you know, who, who is on the outside and who's on the inside. And whether it's in terms of our family or our Buddhist community or, you know, however we might draw that circle, how silly it is. You know, fundamentalists, I don't know. You know, that's a pretty fundamentalist view. <laughs> when we start thinking, oh, fundamentalists, I don't know about them. <laughs> And we right there. And they know this is how we create suffering. And so, again, you know, to notice the discriminating mind. And one trick with any of these, you know, judging mind, comparing mind, envy, discriminating mind, demeaning mind, where we're putting people down, stingy mind, bored mind, is you can actually repeat that particular flavor out loud as a way to illuminate it. So when you find yourself judging or comparing, then say it again. Oh, having the thought that I'm better than or that that person is better than me. Or having the thought that these people don't really matter or that these people really matter. So you say it out loud and it kind of then stands out like the bumper sticker can stand out. Oh, wow. And then that creates the ground for saying something like, well... May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. You know, we put people down. We demean people, or demean ourselves, I guess, too. Because we're not convinced that people deserve to be happy. You know, we have this idea of how, it sh how happiness should be distributed. Or somehow we feel like if they're really happy, it somehow gets in the way, like there's just a set amount of happiness. And if some people are really happy, somehow it's, it's threatening my happiness or keeping me from being happy. I remember reading, and I don't know if I can recall the, all the details, but I think it was a study at Harvard with some graduate students. And they gave people some options like, you know, you can earn $300,000 a year, but everybody else will be earning $300,000 a year. Or you can be earning $50,000 a year, and everybody else will be earning $25,000 a year. What would you prefer? And people preferred earning $50,000 a year when everybody else is earning $25,000 a year than earning $300,000 a year. Something like that. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting that <clears throat> this idea that happiness is relative. Now, they've done studies where they find that it's not. I don't know how accurate these studies are, but these, these studies have gotten some press, so maybe some of you have read about them in the papers, too, or in the magazines, about where they've, uh, I guess it's done mostly by surveys, you know, people reporting how happy they are, <clears throat> and they track it over time for people, and then, lo and behold, some people have some real success, like they win the lottery, or they fall in love, or they... And, and they're tracking, you know, I don't know if it's every six months or every few months, they give them the same survey, you know, how happy are you, basically. And they find that, you know, people get cancer and they report being less happy or they f fall in love and report being more happy. 
but generally there for people there's a base point how happy they are and there may be some fluctuations but that they tend back toward that base point regardless of what happens to them whether they have a lot of success in their jobs or this or that after a while they're pretty much back at where they were before that good thing happened or before that bad thing happened which is sort of interesting and i'll just finish by saying a few words about boredom because it's another real barrier to appreciative joy just rejuvenating rejuvenating the heart by seeing what's good seeing what's beautiful around us and in us and it's the thing is we don't see boredom as a particular view that we are projecting this is so deluding when we feel bored we are so deeply convinced that it's not me deciding to be bored it's that things are really boring <laughs> you know so this is the height of delusion is when we think that the world is out there like the boredom is out there and we don't realize that the boredom is something we're doing here it's this view that says this isn't good enough this isn't important this is just ordinary not worthy of my attention i need something i deserve something more interesting more exciting better and so uh the the key here is to see that boredom is a state of mind it's like it's actually something we can look at so when when we look at boredom we're not looking at what we think is boring you know being at common ground is boring so we don't like look at common ground to understand boredom what we do is we actually feel in a sense energetically in the mind we feel the state of boredom like how do we know that we're bored like if we're bored that means something is happening in the heart or mind that is telling us we're bored so can we put the attention there oh this is boredom and see that that will break the cycle then we see that oh the boredom is here and then then we can then gaze back into the world you know open to hearing seeing feeling and with fresh eyes now now we're not under the influence of this idea that it's boring and we can start seeing things freshly and this is really one of the great things about coming off of a retreat if you haven't been on a, a longer retreat when you come off on a retreat everything is interesting all of a sudden you know you know the lights are interesting stop lights are interesting lawns are interesting driving a car is interesting standing with your friend who you see all the time or your partner who you see all the time all of a sudden they're interesting <laughs> really i'm not kidding everything just feels more interesting more alive more worthy of attention a full presence just like when we're in a real rut nothing is satisfying even ice cream isn't satisfying when you're in a real rut you know that's the flavor of being in a rut is like nothing matters nothing means much yeah that's why people do shock treatment what i mean not i mean i guess actual shock treatment but just they do something you know go get drunk or go bungee jumping or do something dangerous so they feel alive again 
But the problem is this strong view that we're not seeing. So we have to see the view of boredom as something happening in the mind. Feel the weight of it. And then when, we, when we're honest and clear about it, then we can practice seeing the world not under the influence of it, like with fresh eyes. What is actually being known and seen and touched, experienced? And everything is such a mystery when we go beyond our view, our kind of conventional views. It's all such a mystery. Just even being with another person. It's like, it's so unknown. Even somebody you know well. I mean, what is another person? It's amazing. Everything is amazing. But, you know, how often are we actually amazed? Not very often. I was amazed rinsing the lettuce today that Kathleen Zuckerman, one of our community members, brought me or brought Wynn and me to eat. And it was just the color, and it was just picked from her garden, so it was just, you know, how fresh lettuce can be, melts in your mouth. And it was just amazing. You know, it's kind of nice to be amazed every once in a while by simple things. And this is the joy itself. So we have a few minutes that people have some comments about appreciative joy you'd like to share with the group or questions <coughs> remembering as we go home you know the to see what's in the way and then to just in a gentle way see if the mind can go in the other direction and use a phrase and the, a classic one but you can just adjust it so it really works for you may my happiness or your happiness continue may it increase may it never end but what comes to mind, or what have you noticed in your own lives? Mary. I just have a brief comment. It was about a year and a half ago when I first just started coming here. I think I read the self-set pride, maybe. That when come drop up the new building, they promised the burger boy to someone, and then someone else came along and offered more money, but she didn't take it. And I couldn't believe there was an organization that wouldn't go for more money. So I thought it was someplace I should probably go. Is that true? Am I recalling right, Mark? Yeah. Are you going to disappoint me It was kind of interesting. The daughter of the owner, Frank Hall was the owner, and he had Alzheimer's, and the family had to sell the business. And he had been, you know, it had been a diner for a number of years. And she really wanted something for her kids and grandkids to remember her father by and just the, the restaurant by. And so we brainstormed with her and it, it seemed like the neighborhood would be give it to the neighborhood and they were going to install it someplace. And uh, so that's, we donated to Seward Neighborhood Group and they had it for a little less than a year and then they had this huge financial crisis and they had spent some money taking the sign down, the neighborhood group had. And so they gave it back to us and then we did put it on eBay <laughs> and sold it for $1,500. We paid the neighborhood group back, and so we did get $1,000 for it. But, yeah, we did give it away to the neighborhood group initially. Wait a minute. What about the family? They didn't get the sign? They didn't want it. Oh, they didn't want it. No, no. We, no, we tried a number of museums to give it to, but, you know, just the transportation costs and stuff. Yeah. It's nine. It was nine by nine. It's bigger than I thought. You know, looking up, it didn't look that big, but when you got it down, it was huge. Yeah, with all this fragile neon stuff, which some of it was broken, just loading it in the guy's truck. who He bought it, some guy from Minot, North Dakota. 
Yeah, it was. Uh, I was just making the point. You know, you always have to be careful when you try to define what who we are. That one of the most obvious characteristics of our existence is just that we're sensitive. And uh, this is actually in the more subtle teachings that the Buddha gave. This is a really important point to recognize. What is it like being sensitive? Like to really uh, attend to the experience of just being a sensitive being, always sensitive. Can you shut? Can we shut off our sensitivity? We can't. I mean, we can distract ourselves, but when we distract ourselves, like get involved in some fantasy, we're still sensitive, but we're in a sense exclusively sensitive to the fantasy and the emotions that arise in conjunction with that with that fantasy. We're still sensitive even though we're not necessarily sensitive to having a body because we're so absorbed into the fantasy. So the primary characteristic of our being is that we're sensitive. And so the question is, what is the appropriate path or way of being for a sensitive being? Is it to try to control the sensitivity? Because you can't really control it. I mean, it's like we're this raw, tender, sensitive heart. That's all we are, is the sensitivity. And in Buddhism, you know, the word Buddha, it represents a historic person who, who started these teachings. But it also, more importantly, represents this sensitivity, this sort of quality of knowing. And so we're trying to wake up to this sensitivity. But see, we always put characteristics on the sensitivity, but that's something we're sensitive to. Like that's something that's being known. That isn't the knowing itself. There is this quality, this, this experience of knowing. But all we know is what's being known. <clears throat> it's not so easy to know the knowing itself. But we can intuit it. Right? We know it's there. We know knowing is there. But the only thing we can really notice isn't the knowing, but we notice what the knowing is knowing. I know this is kind of confusing. So we want to see, we want to intuitively begin to recognize there is this inherent sensitivity or this inherent awareness, knowing. And so as the mind essence, this sensitivity, this knowing, what's the appropriate way to be given this is the essence? And, and what we discover just through trial and error that the appropriate way is to let knowing happen, not to try to control, but to be fully, wholeheartedly present, undefended through life, instead of trying to pick and choose what we're going to know, what we're going to be sensitive to. So when loss arises in our life, to really feel the pain of loss. When beauty arises in our lives, to really feel the beauty or the joy or the happiness. Otherwise, what we do is, if we try to control it, we're creating friction or rope burn, and we suffer. You know, we're trying to control the sensitivity. And that always arises out of a self-centered point of view. And I think we have to leave it here. Brent, very quickly, though.
That's a nice place to end. Thanks, Brent, for sharing that. Let's just take a breath together. Let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.